I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to Off The Beaten Track Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Stu Whiffin. It's another day, therefore it's another episode. And today's episode, I sit down with Chili Gonzalez and we have a wonderful chat. Um, just an interesting take on the podcast. Um, some some questions get two answers, and 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 it's not him being greedy. Um, it's just really re- really insightful, and, and you get a real grasp of of his you know of of where where he's coming from musically because some are classical and and and, and some are more kind of you know, trenched in pop culture and uh, and we, we discuss both at length. And uh, you're in for a treat today. This is a, a really wonderful chat. Um, I should also say if you uh, you enjoy this as well, then then go and check out um, Chili on Scribbis Pips distraction pieces, um, which come out a couple of years ago. Um, another wonderful chat um, with Mr. Gonzalez. Um, okay, so before we get on with it, um, a few thank yous. A big thank you to Pip and all my brothers and sisters at the Distraction Pieces Network. Thank you to 76, producer extraordinaire, for um, working his magic on these podcasts, which is, you know, which is a tougher job for him now because we're all doing these remotely over your Zooms and Skypes and things like that. So, um, so thanks to 76 for that. Um, if this is your first time listening to Off The Beaten Track, and once, all, all I'll say is once you finish listening um, to this great episode, uh, with Chili Gonzalez, then um, have a look in the archives because there's 180 odd episodes now with artists as diverse as from Chuck D to Mel C uh, to Amanda Palmer to Maxine Peake to Chic, um, yeah, to Butch Fig um, to Fatboy Slim. So we go all over the place um, having some wonderful chats with some delightful creatives and uh, and they're all there to be listened to for free um also if that's not enough and you'd like to support the podcast um i do have a patreon page that accompanies it where i put up four um shows each week where i play records and talk and and uh and have guests and put up uh, unique episodes as well and put up some video episodes and uh, and you can support the podcast over there for as little as i think it's about 87p a week um and yeah it all goes in the pot and it really helps because this podcast is a labor of love um okay you can find out about everything you need to know about this stuff at www.offthebeatandtrackpodcast.com back to today's episode please enjoy off the beat and track podcast with chili gonzalez listen up i've only got another new sponsor egg fried it's this super cool clothing label and 
if you're into sort of skating and street art and gigging and, and kind of like really cool art and throwing a little bit of Asian culture and, and the designer's kind of weird sense of humour in the mix, then you're pretty much there with the wonderful world that is eggfried.com. Now, they do these amazing punchy kind of graphic tees, hoodies and sweatshirts, beautiful art prints, as well as this, they have a denim range, all handmade in-house, all supporting the slow fashion movement. Not only that, they've given you a discount code, 10% off when you head over to eggfried.com. Just use the code EGGSALAD, E-W-G-S-A-L-A-D, save 10%. Go and get lost in the world of egg fried. Also, they've got a new kids range, and it's called Small Fried, and it's super cool, super cute. Um, And again, it's all over there in this wonderful world. Go and get involved at eggfried.com. It's off the beat and track podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. With me, Stu Whipping. Okay, we're recording. Sitting opposite me via the means of Zoom, Chili Gonzalez. Good morning. Good morning. How are you today? Oh, I'm fantastic. Happy to be talking to you. Oh, thanks, mate. Thanks. So, um, you've just mentioned that you're in, in London at the moment. How's that come about? How comes you're in, uh, you're in London? Uh, I have a place here. I'm in between London and Cologne, Germany. So, so have you been here for the duration of lockdown? Uh, I've been back and forth. I'm very careful, and I've become a professional pandemic traveler. <laughs> have you? Um, have you found the last six, seven months as um, as a as a human being uh, and as a and as a creative? How you found that? Uh, I feel like it's an x-ray that brings truth, both good and bad. I feel like many people find that the whole process revealed things to them. And so I just tend to focus on the positives and negatives uh, and to understand that we're in a kind of accelerated reality because of it. And um, things that maybe we were putting off have come sooner than we thought. Again, both good and bad. So uh, I've been quite fascinated. I'm trying to look at it like a learning opportunity as much as I can. Uh, And of course, I think everybody feels a bit more connected probably than they did before to each other. There's literally no one on earth who isn't experiencing some change because of this. And that's pretty rare to have that feeling of solidarity. So I try to sort of you know, just feel that. I try to feel that uh, togetherness, whether it's good or bad, we're all going through it together. Okay. Let's talk records. Track one, the song with the greatest ever intro, please. Okay, so when you talk songs, so I'm a little bit of a classical nerd as well. So sometimes there are you know, pieces of music that don't qualify as songs. So often I'll have two answers. Okay, that's fine. I hope that's okay. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of an omnivore that way. And, and maybe, um, maybe for those who don't listen to classical music, this will be a chance for me to, you know, explain some of the things I love about uh, classical music to uh, an audience who doesn't normally listen to it. So there is a composer named Richard Wagner. I'm sure people have heard of him. He is either the Kanye West of composers or perhaps even worse in that he was a horrible human being who wrote literally books about 
uh, how Jewish people don't have the right to claim their own culture. He's basically considered a forerunner of heavy institutional anti-Semitism. So to listen to his music, you have to divorce the art from the artist, which not a lot of people can do. Some people don't listen to R. Kelly anymore, for example. Now, Wagner wrote one of the most incredible intros ever to a cycle of four operas called The Ring. That's kind of his his masterwork. And this intro is to the first opera in that cycle. It's called The Rheingold. And what he does over an E-flat major chord with the orchestra is essentially create the world. And so it's about four or five minutes, and you have some some kind of burbling low basses. And very, very slowly, you have the orchestra come in. And it is really one of the most spectacular renderings of the idea of creation itself, whether it's the creation of the world or the creation of an artwork. But it is incredibly inspiring, but very problematic. I can't really listen to it anymore because of those reasons. I tend to be one of those people who says, you know what? There's enough great music out there that I can live without R. Kelly. I can live without Michael Jackson. I can live without watching Woody Allen movies. There's other interesting movies surely to discover. So I'm happy to part with artworks that are made by horrible human beings as a show of solidarity to the people who were their victims. Uh, However, that intro, it's incredible. On a more positive note, I picked the (laughs) intro to Let's Go Crazy by Prince. Oh, wonderful. Which, of course, starts with a kind of essentially a church style thing. There's There's a major core. On an organ, and Prince essentially with the cadence of, you know, a, a proper uh, fire and brimstone uh, kind of uh, reverend, and uh, he's criticizing a lot of our culture, which has only gotten worse since then. This must have come out in the, the I guess, very early eighties. So yeah, what Prince starts talking essentially as a preacher would speak, but he's kind of a secular preacher. He's talking about a lot of the nihilism. He's talking about prescription drugs, how we're numbing ourselves. He's basically indicting late capitalism already in the early 80s. Everything he said has only borne out to be true since then. So I think if you took those words on a piece of paper, they would be positively prophetic. Uh, and of course, then the actual song comes in. So I find this kind of secular religious sermon very, very uh, appealing. And of course, it's the first song on the album. So it just sets it off. It's such a classic album, Purple Rain. But he begins it with just this uh, very prescient criticism of where we're at as a society. Have you ever been, um, as you've sort of, made music over the years have you ever been affected by the sort of trends in i'm just thinking about let's go crazy as an example i was was chatting to um andy mccluskey of imd the other day on on this podcast and he was saying that there's a a rule in place now that that he found out about when he was writing for somebody else about the vocals got to come in within 19 seconds of the song and and just the way that the music seems to yeah i guess commercial radio and 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 how you've got a kind of get to it and has that ever had any kind of influence on how you approach songwriting well only in the sense that because i largely make instrumental music in a way to apply some of those pop rules to instrumental music with acoustic instruments 
tends to make it more accessible, but there isn't a vocal to speak of in instrumental music. Mm. So you're kind of exempt from some of those very strict rules of songwriting, which exist in this very, it's a very small slice of the music that's yeah. made today yeah. that is desperate to be a hit. Let's be clear about that. Mm. And so what I tend to think is there are some ironclad rules about um, surprise, satisfaction, tension, resolution, the variation between at least two ideas that is the cornerstone of of a pop song. But that already existed when Chopin was writing Nocturnes. It already existed when uh, Broadway composers were writing the great standards that became the backbone of jazz music, for example. So the fundamentals of why a song is satisfying when it has only a couple of ideas and lasts between two and four minutes is was there long before the more brutal sort of um, very uh, capitalism on steroids approach to top line writing. And so, you know, I don't think that I ever had in mind that my, my vocal has to come in within 17 seconds. And of course, what's also interesting is there are exceptions that prove the rule. Every once in a while, there is a Bohemian Rhapsody or a song like that that just openly flouts the rules. And it's wonderful to be reminded that those rules aren't as ironclad as we think. But I don't really know any musicians in my world who were openly trying to make those hits, with maybe the exception of the few times I was in the studio with Drake, who clearly thinks. But even Drake songs, the structure is not quite as um, as rote and formulaic as one would think. So I think once you really get to the stratosphere of pop music, you stop thinking like that again because you're free to try to make exceptions and drive. You know, Hotline Bling is a really weirdly structured song, that Drake song. It's not something that your typical A&R douchebag would, would say, there we have it, we're done. Yeah. You know, but he's Drake. He gets to sort of be ahead of the curve. So in a strange way, it's more the desperate people, the people who are desperate to have a hit, who think that there really is some rule book. But if you really look at it, the, the hits that really, you know, if you look at Dance Monkey, that's not really a song that would pass muster with an A&R person uh, because it's actually quite weirdly structured once you listen to it. So I think there are more exceptions to these supposed rules than we allow for. And it's more that, 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 that the aspirational middle class of hit makers, they're the ones who are too insecure to do anything but follow all of those rules. And when you actually get to the top, the people who are really doing it on the NBA level, they're not actually following those rules as much as we think. And in my sort of, you know, uh, middle class of music, where we're not really trying to have hits, well, we're basically free from that, aren't we? And most of the musicians I know, thankfully, aren't doing that beyond trying to get the storytelling right in our own music. And that will involve repetition. There, there is something to be said for repeating the chorus at least twice, maybe three times. I mean, but that's not, um, that's not new and that's not um, anything but maybe uh, a basic rule that follows the hero's journey. You know, you start with stability, you go somewhere else, you come home. That's the story of every novel, film, and chord progression, essentially. Okay. First song you remember hearing that had an emotional impact on you, please. So this is, again... Um, not a pop song, but it's a song that my grandfather composed. My grandfather was a frustrated uh, Euro snob who was forced to leave his native Hungary 
because of some very nasty Germans who were inspired by Richard Wagner. Um, and he came to Canada and was very bitter and frustrated that he had to leave his beloved Europe. So he wanted to really make sure his grandkids were connected to Europe. And that's why there are photos of me two years old in front of the piano, uh, strictly uh, being, you know, indoctrinated into Euro supremacy, the great man theory of, of musical artists, Bach and Beethoven and Brahms and all of that. And my grandfather was an amateur composer as well. And he had this one piece called Gavotte. As far as I know, it's the only thing he wrote. He would just play it sometimes. And I understood that this piece of music, which I really loved, had come from his brain. And it sort of up close and personal made me realize that it's a human being who brings music into existence. I think some people don't realize until much later. But at a very young age, I understood what creation was i had this example in front of me and that really touched me emotionally made me want to be able to do that myself just as a as a side anecdote my brother who is also an older brother who's a musician as well of course remembers this piece gavotte very very well and um we couldn't remember past the first four bars we realized at some point at our elevated age in our late 40s neither of us could remember what happened after the fourth bar and at one point on solo piano two, I decided to sort of finish the piece in my mind. And I recorded a song called Papa Gavot, because Papa is the Hungarian word for grandfather. And, uh, and I tried to finish the piece best I could uh, to sort of make that real and sort of come full circle. And that was the last song on my solo piano two album back in 2012. And that was a way of kind of squaring the circle with this very touching um, you know, he was a sad man in a way. And um, I think his ideas about Europe European supremacy were quite wrong. He didn't like that I was getting interested in jazz and pop music. He said some things that were uh, racist. He said there'd never be a black Mozart. And yet there I was watching Prince in the movie Purple Rain going, I'm pretty sure that's black Mozart right there. <laughs> <laughs> So it's, it's a very mixed em, uh, emotions I have when I think about my grandfather, but he was, for me, the first artist. And that Gavotte piece was essentially the first artwork I ever encountered up close and personal. And the emotion that you drew from that would have been what? Fascination. I mean, it's hard to know when you're that young how you process emotions, but it, I was a bit overwhelmed. I think the idea that, that he made it he had made that with his own Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20 20, 20 ready to get 20 20, ready to get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. 
Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Brain and his own fingers, I guess, inspirational. Um fascination and maybe something a, a kind of a kind of appreciation an understanding that he was processing his emotions which were so tied to his forced exit from Hungary I think that was very touching to me to see that you could process a negative emotion and have it come out as beauty the song that reminds you of your time at school, please. Let's see. What do I have here? Oh, yeah, of course. Well, um, I was in bands with my, with my friends, of course. Were you as well? I was, of course, yeah. <laughs> um, and in my case, I didn't pick the best musicians. I picked my best friends and we figured out. <laughs> yeah, that's what you do, right? <laughs> you figure out who can play what. <laughs> yeah. and, and and I think that's really important to understand that you're prioritizing the hang rather than necessarily the, the, the result. And uh, my older brother was a bit different. He was a bit already a bit more mercenary. And he had really hotshot musicians in his band. And if someone wasn't cutting it, even if it, he was their friend, they'd get kicked out. You know, they were. And I really took the opposite approach. I just thought, no. The hang is what's most important. And I had a little synthesizer, um, a DX7. And I remember loving to go through the sounds and to be able to recreate some of the sounds that I heard on the radio because DX7 was in a lot of pop music at that point. And uh, one of the songs I enjoyed playing the most was the opening riff from Orinoco Flow, Sail Away by Enya, uh, because it has that great pizzicato sound. Boom, 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 boom. Boom, 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 boom. The song didn't have any drums in it, which I thought was really fascinating, and yet it was really heavy. Is that not and, drums uh, in it? There's no drums in any of Enya's music, to be honest. She occasionally has a tambourine or a, a crash cymbal. She has an orchestral approach to using percussion. There are no drums in Enya's music. There's no beats. There's no drum set. There's no kick and snare. There's nothing of that sort. The pulse always comes from plucked synthesized sounds very very often uh and occasionally piano in her later work but in that beginning uh era of enya all of the rhythm comes from fake plucked synthesizers and i would just sit there playing this pizzicato sound which i just love and when i ended up having a string quartet at my disposal uh back in 2015 for a few years I was, they were always like, you're always writing pizzicato for us. I said, hey, blame Enya, you know? I, I don't know if you know, but I, I just wrote a book about Enya. Oh, really? I didn't know that, yeah. no. Yeah, so it's called Enya, A Treatise on Unguilty Pleasures. It came out on Rough Trade Books a couple weeks ago. And I talk about all of this. I talk about uh, how Enya is actually a pretty fierce, nonconformist, and kind of a badass when it comes to her career. There's a lot more about her music and her career that goes against what would be expected of her, either from her audience or the industry. She doesn't tour. She hardly promotes herself. Uh, 
she is essentially a real punk rock artist in many ways. However, because her music is so soporific, we tend to think of her as sort of this new age kind of guilty pleasure. But I find that contradiction very interesting. You know, um, what is a badass career supposed to sound like? And we have ideas that it should sound much more challenging, dissonant. It should sound anti. And yet Enya's music is so consensual and so pleasing and so relaxing and reassuring and maternal and warm. These are things I really love about her music. At the same time, I admire the, uh, the, the, the you know, her career is one that makes an A&R douchebag's head explode for sure. Yeah. You know, and, uh, and, and so, yeah, Orinoco flow was very fascinating to me. She's a mysterious figure. Um, and I'm always attracted by mysterious figures. I, I think to be mysterious is nonetheless a choice and enter it's one of the entertainer's choices we see it with daft punk we see it with banksy we see it with miles davis turning his back in the 60s when he played trumpet yet wearing an armani suit and an amazing fedora so all of these are choices sorry for the interruption it's just a super quick advert the signal is a platform for podcasters to launch a fully featured app onto the app store and google play in just a matter of days it allows you to monetize your podcast with in-app subscriptions and offer in exchange a whole world of features for your listeners, like exclusive episodes, ad-free versions of episodes, YouTube live streams, downloads, and much, much more. The Signal allows you to pull all your best content into one place that you control. No more trying to play the algorithm. Just connect directly with your audience and give them more of what they love. For just a small monthly cost and no contracts, you get your app into stores in days, not months. No big upfront development costs, no waiting months for beta versions, just all your content under your control. And even better, if you tell them Stu sent you, they will waive the £100 setup fee. So go to thesignal.app and take your podcast to the next level. Back to my podcast. I read something about Enya once, which kind of stuck with me, and it would have been around the time I, I, there was a, a TV show in the UK called The Chart Show, and uh, and in the middle of that, they showed the videos, and in the middle of the videos, they'd, they'd sort of pop up little facts on the bands, and, and it would have been at the time when Orinoco Flow was at number one. And, uh, and it just said that um, Enya dreams in Gaelic, and I just thought that was quite interesting, that, uh, that whenever she dreams, she dreams in Gaelic. And, uh... Well, English is her second language, and mm. I think you, you get that from her music, actually. Mm. You know, and one, one other thing interesting about Enya's music, she doesn't say I in her lyrics. She is more connected to folk music, folk music which has, doesn't have the ego of the composer in it. It's collective music. It has a social function. It's there to bring people together. So it's normal that we don't hear the, the, the word I in an Enya song because it's essentially a lullaby or it's a, um, it's a balm. It's, a, it's music that has a positive social function. And there's many of her pieces where you don't understand the words she's saying. Well, try to sing the verse of Orinoco Flow to me. It just sounds like witchy nonsense. Yeah. So I think the fact that English is her second language, that she's much more comfortable in her native Gaelic, uh, is also part of the reason that her music has that mystery and defies a kind of 
very um, first level reading where we normally look for the lyrics and, you know, especially in the age of rap where everything is literally I, I, this, me, 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 you know, it sounds like an opera singer warming up, me, 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 you know, <laughs> and, uh, and, and Enya is something else, Enya yeah. is something else, she's connected to something that I think pleases the gods of music in a, in a deeper way for its social function. Was Orinoco Flow your introduction, or was you aware of Clannard and, and, and the work uh, that she'd done no. in? No, Orinoco Flow was the, was the introduction, but I, I did do some research when, uh, when I got, uh, got sort of hooked on Orinoco Flow. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. What was the first record you remember buying? Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Welcome to the Pleasure Dome. I saved up. Uh, I remember the cover. I remember that they had a journalist in the band, Paul Morley, who's now you know writing about classical music. I thought that was a pretty interesting switch for him. And I thought wow, they have their own propaganda minister, essentially, in this band. How cool. How cool that they took such joy in what many artists would say are the sort of uh, the parts of making music that are sullied or somehow corrupted. You know, the whole idea of, you know, I make music just to please myself and I don't do any effort beyond creative art I, I think it's such a it's such a natural and i think one of the beautiful things about rap music is how much they embrace that second stage of creativity where you think about how it's going to feel how it's going to look how it's going to smell what you're going to say about it what some people will call marketing i would just call you know context you, you give a context you tell a story around the creative thing that you've made um and frankie goes to hollywood we're kind of in so many ways ahead of the curve by openly embracing and making that calculating uh, nature that they had a part of their story. So many musicians calculate in secret and they try to make it look like they don't. It's the oops, I'm good theory of coming from indie rock, let's say, uh, where people better not think that I think too much about that second stage. Uh, I was very inspired by Frankie Goes to Hollywood back then, but when I actually had a career to to think about rappers, especially, made me feel like I didn't have to make a choice between art and commerce, and the two can really function well, and that you should create in a state of artistic purity. This I agree with. You should be, in a sense, blind to yourself. You should go fishing inside of yourself and see what comes out. Let yourself be surprised, shocked, impressed by yourself. But that second stage, you have to suddenly, in a sense, become objective and start to think like a propaganda minister, to be completely honest, in your own way, without compromising or changing the original creation. You think, now that I have this, maybe it's weird, maybe it's difficult. Whoa, this is, whoa, instrumental music? Okay, well, let me do my best now that this will meet the people where they live in a way that's going to make it powerful, it's going to get them interested, that's going to get them hooked. And I love that Frankie Goes to Hollywood had that Warholian attitude um, that marketing shouldn't be a dirty word and it has its place in the creative process. I mean, where, where was you in Canada when you, when you bought that? Yes. What kind of furore did that record cause in Canada? Because obviously it was, it was like Relax was, was, was banned in the UK and, and there was so much... 
hype and attention around this, you know, this record that was being, you know, wasn't allowed to be played on the radio and it had nothing to do with how long the intro was. It was the, it was the content, which as a young man, I had no idea. I just thought they were just talking about, you know, just relaxing, just chilling out a little bit. I had no idea exactly. what was going on. I went on. to see them live. I went to see them live and they had like some drag queens doing comedy to open up. I'd never seen a drag queen. I did not know what that was. I was fascinated. It it was a huge furor. Um, and the band was so good live. I mean, musically, they're really, really? really underrated as players. They really are good, you know? So that's what I love about them is that some people say they were just the propaganda part, but there was real musical mastery going on, and not just Trevor Horn. They could really play. Holly Johnson is a fantastic singer, a really, really great classic frontman. There's real mastery, but also real pain in his voice. Um, so, yeah, it was huge. I mean, they were breaking all kinds of records for um, how long a single was staying on the charts. That was the Reagan-Thatcher era, and they were a perfect mirror of that greed is good you know, excess and, uh, and megalomania. Yeah. As people who know my work know that there's a megalomaniacal strain that runs through it. I, I loved how Holly Johnson felt like a supervillain, someone yeah. who was sad and wounded and wanted to get revenge on the world for it. That really appealed to me. The song that soundtrack your years clubbing so um i said this is it's awfully presumptuous of you to think that i've ever been clubbing <laughs> i've had I've, so I, many guests I've on here that have clubbing. never been clubbing don't worry i've never been clubbing i really laughed when i saw it i thought wow that's really <laughs> i've never been clubbing you know i jammed with my friends i'm i am a, a musician through and through in the sense that my social life revolved around hanging out with other musicians smoking weed for hours and just just making music with zero goal, just literally as an activity uh, unto itself. That's my social life. It, Canada clubbing also didn't hit the same way it did until much, much later. I was already living in Europe when clubbing was sort of just starting to become a thing uh, in the mainstream in, in Canada. So, Well, let's switch it. Uh, let's switch it. So if you're, you're jamming in bands, then um, what – would you be going to gigs as well? Yeah, but in those days it was bands. It's a band culture. Yeah, in yeah. So, you know? so I'll ask you then: um, What bands did you see early on that that impacted on you live? Like that that that, that you left that venue thinking, "Oh, yeah, I've just witnessed something there." Well, you know, we were in a in a in a kind of. You know, we were kind of in a in a in a in a circle of bands. Obviously, we were in some cases kind of outcast because of our approach was very goofy. Uh, I'm talking about my gang with like Peaches and Leslie Feist and people like that. And we always had this problem of being the weird ones on last. That's what we called it. So whenever we were part of a multi <laughs> a multi-band bill, they knew that we weren't going to fit in with the indie rock singer-songwriter culture that was very dominant in the in the mid and late 90s. And so we would always be put on last, and we would just clear the room. We were goofy. We were like these kids who wanted, let's put on a show, but we were juvenile and therefore quite potty-mouthed. 
And very slowly, stuff started sort of seeping in from Europe. And I will say that, you know, the only thing that comes close to clubbing was just hearing the first Daft Punk album. Wonderful. Homework. And to hear that and to hear the playfulness of it, to hear that there was punk rock happening with machines and not with guitars and drums was very eye-opening. I can really remember that really gave birth to, I think, whatever part of me had one foot in Electro Clash, but the part that Peaches had with a very much bigger bigger foot that she had in Electro Clash, I really can trace it back to one of those evenings jamming and then us taking a bit of a break, smoking a joint, putting on the first Daft Punk album and really losing our minds, I have to say, especially rolling and scratching, the one where it's just a kick drum and one single noise that gets filtered in and out. And I've actually done a version where I kind of composed an entire piece with my acoustic instruments around that. And I kind of took that that annoying little dusty note, that and I kind of harmonized it in all these different ways and kind of paid tribute to it because I think that was one song that really um, can be said is responsible for, for a, a huge part of Peach's career and a part of mine as well. Wonderful. For track six, a favorite song from an artist from your home county, please. That's quite easy. I'm going to go with Summer of 69 by Brian Adams. Okay. There's a, there's a lyric in there that always stuck with me. So people tend to think of this song as quite kitschy and it's, you know, it's, it's a, at best a guilty pleasure for many people. Brian Adams is underrated as, a, as an artist, in my opinion. Um, as many people in the 80s are, you know, we tend to think of them as frivolous. And um, he, he sings this one line. He sings, ain't no use in complaining when you've got a job to do. And this kind of old school professionalism inserted into what's supposed to sort of be this ecstatic pop song that's sort of, you know, summer of 69 and this, this intense nostalgia, it really stuck out to me. And, you know, I come from a family where there was a lot of uh, workaholism, a lot of you, you are defined by the work you do. Uh, my father was a first generation immigrant from Hungary, as I mentioned, uh, and really sort of embraced, you know, the Canadian twist on capitalism wholeheartedly and there was a lot of pressure for us to find something that we love to do and become good at it. And there's a kind of professionalism that um, is very important to me. Uh, I am very demanding of the people I work with. Uh, I, I think it's important to create a positive working atmosphere. I have a little label. I've been independent since 2009. I've got four employees and I've kept them. The same employees since 10 years and we have a really nice little little culture going on in our little company and there's something about that brian adams lyric that really surprised me as being in a song of that nature and just being around some musicians who seem to have this anti-professionalism which to me always seems like a a sort of self-sabotage in some ways there's kind of a fear of of the hard work that it takes. And they still believe that being an artist is some magical accidental process. And I think there are mysterious and accidental parts of being an artist, but the professionalism is also what gets you through. And I can just, 
I think it must have resonated with the the sort of message that I got growing up from my father to hear Brian Adams say it. And to a lesser extent, you hear it a lot in, in, in rap music as well. You hear rappers talk a lot about the importance of work. And even if they are, even if their image is one of a berserker, like 50 Cent back in the day or Lil Wayne, there's, there's no accident to getting to that top spot. You need a team and you need a good team and you need to be able to make sure you work with that team. And that's a, a sort of hidden part of our, of our music world, again, because of this, this pedestal that we put the artistic process on. Uh, people are loath to talk about that, the professionalism, the hard work, the, 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 the nuts and bolts of releasing a record. And again, I like to sort of embrace those parts of the process rather than put them under the carpet. So I think that Brian Adams' lyric, strangely, has just stayed with me. There's an acapella of Summer of 69 that's floating around the internet. And every once in a while, I'll just, on stage, I'll just have my sound man put it on and I'll just accompany it in a minor key and on piano. Usually when it's, if I'm playing concert around September when it's the end of the summer, I always, I kind of do an elegy for the death of summer. But every time that lyric comes on, it just gives me this little extra special goosebumps, you know, just to hear him say that. It's a really strange lyric to have in a pop song. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know, I've, I've obviously, you know, like you, I've probably heard that song thousands and thousands of times. And the minute you said that lyric, I thought, yes, I've heard that a thousand times, but I've never took it as anything. I've never listened to it in any way. You know, you just kind of get, for me, I just got caught up on the whole kind of nostalgia of, you know, getting his first six string and, you know, Jimmy quit and all of that. And, and then when you say that lyric, it seems so different from the rest of the song. That's it right. just stands out. Like, that's going to change the way I listen to that song now whenever I hear it. <laughs> Good. <laughs> okay, for the last song. A song that many may not know that you would like them to hear. Okay, this is a this is not going to be a single song, but it's a this is something when I meet a musician or any person really who I think um, needs that space in their life for music to sort of take them away and create a safe space. Uh, it's a mystical set of pieces written by a mystical guy called Gurdjieff, G U R D. J-I-E-F-F. And he was kind of a, almost like a guru, almost like a cult leader uh, from, I believe, Azerbaijan. I hope I'm not going to get any facts wrong because I'm not an expert in his life. But as far as I know, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, he was basically leading a kind of commune. And he was very mystical. And he would play a harmonium, which is a kind of air organ that you pump a pedal with your foot and it kind of creates this sort of creaky you know organ on a ship kind of atmosphere and one of his disciples in the 70s was a uh, disillusioned concert pianist from europe called thomas de hartman who just had enough of <coughs> excuse excuse me smoker's cough not corona um and thomas de hartman was a disillusioned european concert pianist who'd had enough of the sort of white elite conservative world of concert music and became a disciple of this guy Gurdjieff and he heard him playing these strange folk songs which were kind of inherited folk music I guess from all these different sources 
readings from the Quran, some Christian stuff, some sacred processions and things like this. And Thomas de Hartman started to transcribe these into European notation so that they were playable on the piano. And he proceeded to make a recording of all these pieces. I think there's more than a hundred. So if you listen to this album, it can give you a solid eight, nine hours of music if you put it on. Sometimes I'll just spend the entire day, if I know I'm going to be pottering around the house, I'll just put it on. The songs sound similar to each other. They kind of create a re repetitive yet never truly repeating um, living and breathing musical atmosphere. It sounds a little bit like classical music when each song starts. It could theoretically be the intro of a Schubert piece or a Beethoven piece, and yet it never goes to that development. It sort of stays where the intro would be, and in that way it reminds me of many of our aesthetics of pop music in that the way it starts is the way it continues and is the way it ends. And the, the storytelling is very subtle and not subject to any ego presence of a composer. Again, I'm fascinated by music where you don't hear the ego of the composer. I'm not capable of writing music in which my ego isn't there yet. I may end up one day being able to do it, perhaps because the grass is always greener. I look at that and I say, wow, I aspire to that. I hear that in Enya. I hear that in the Gurdjieff de Hartman recording. So I really recommend that. It's positively life-changing for most of the people that I've recommended it to. It's on the streaming services. Make sure you listen to the original recordings by the man who transcribed them, Thomas de Hartman. And um, let yourself fall into a mystical musical zone free of any ego and you suddenly realize all the music we hear these days it's all about the person who made it and to finally be able to let go of that and hear music that's has enough space for you to find yourself in it it just reminds you that music could be another way i don't think anyone's recommended a record on this podcast quite as well as that uh that was that was delightful um as we find ourselves hopefully getting to the end of a, a, a strange year and going to enter into a another year that's hopefully going to be a little bit more joyous and and free. Um, oh, you're talking about 2022? <laughs> no, no, I'm really not. Um, what um, what are you looking forward to personally, and what have you got happening professionally? Well, I've I've made a Corona Christmas album. I don't know if you know. I have an album called A Very Chilly Christmas that we just announced yesterday, uh, coming out November 13th. I'm not sure when this is being broadcast, but um, it is a Christmas music album, unlike any other. I feel like this year we needed an end-of-year album that would reflect the mixed feelings. It's very, very intimate. I do transform some of the most popular Christmas songs into a minor key, uh, which gives them this other melancholy nostalgia. Part of my fascination with Music Without Ego led me to Christmas carols because they are also songs where you don't hear the word I, not not counting Last Christmas and All I Want for Christmas is You, which are also on my album. But most of the old carols don't have the word I in them because they're meant to bring people together. I think this year um, we learned that music can have this other function. It, it became less about... Uh, I listen to music because I'm going for a jog and I'm partying and music became more of the, a balm this year. And 
despite the fact that we weren't able to go see it live in a room with other people as we usually did, strangely, technology uh, showed us that the power of music can even go beyond that. It's not ideal to watch a live stream. It's not ideal to simultaneously listen to music uh, in millions of different homes off of a streaming service at any given time. And yet the power of that became, I think, more evident to people this year. So music has a role to play in this crisis, just as I think uh, everything that people hold dear has a role. I don't think music is more or less important than any other art form or any other service uh, for that matter. I hear a lot of musicians saying now more than ever music is is going to get us through this. I would say yes for some people, but also no. Try to get beyond the thing you do. Try to stop and, for a minute and get beyond the feeling of music is the most important because it's the thing that I do. I mean, that's a little bit, um, it's a little bit self, self-aggrandizing. Uh, we all do important things. We all had to, you know, as I told you, I've struggled with, the idea of, am I my work? Do I have an identity outside of the work that I do? And these are all questions I think people asked, but um, that's why I made this album of Christmas music in anticipation of people needing to reconnect with that music that doesn't have the word I in it. This is really where my um, aesthetics were heading this year. It's why I wrote the book about Enya. It's why I did the Christmas music album all of my, it's why I recommend the Gurdjieff to Hartman. A lot of my obsessions have turned toward that initial function, the social function of music, which in some ways is stronger than ever, but in other ways um, can still be corrupted and is missing, you know, because music has so much become entwined with capitalism. And um, in its original form, it was not something to be sold, it was something to be told. This has been an absolute delight. Thank you so much for your time today. It's, of course, uh, I really enjoyed it. It's been a wonderful chat. Thank you so much. Talk very soon. Brilliant. Chili Gonzalez, um, where can people find out all about what you're doing if they're not up to speed already? Google Box, baby. A Very Chilly Christmas, my Christmas album, my Enya book. It's all there. Um, go to YouTube, watch my pop music masterclasses, and it's Gonzalez with an S, not a Z. Wonderful. Thank you. There you go. Wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Um, never going to listen to Summer of 69 the same. Never, ever going to listen to Enya's Orinoco Flow again. How did, how did I not know that there was drums on? There was no drums on that. I was convinced that that chorus sounded so huge. It must have had huge drums behind it. But uh, there you go. There you go. Wonderful chat, that. Um, really insightful. Um what what a super nice guy um and i hope you had as much joy listening to that as i did uh chatting to him so thanks again to chili gonzalez thanks to you lot for for listening and supporting this podcast and as mentioned at the beginning um go and have a look in the archives because there's so many great chats to be to be explored um in the in the back catalog and and also if you don't follow us on the socials please do um you know on all the instagram twitter facebook you can follow us on all of them and and give us a like, love, share, retweet, and all of that, because it all helps, you know, get the word out about what we're doing, because this is a, a labour of love. Right, I will see you next time. Thanks again for listening. Bye-bye. I've got an announcement. Save Our Souls Clothing. 
sosclothing.co.uk. Why am I telling you this? Because they're our official sponsor. Yeah, that's right. Go and check them out because their clothing is off the scale. You're going to love it. So they've decided they want to be our sponsor, which is amazing. And what I have to do is I have to tell you about why they're amazing. So here's a little bit of blurb. So they've only been going a year. And they're based in Southend-on-Sea, just up the road from me. They put the company together based on a, a love of tattoos and alternative music. And they've worked with some of the greatest artists around the world to produce these items of clothing that are as unique as you lot. All of the designs are printed using biodegradable, sustainable and water-based inks. In addition to that, they only print on garments made by members of Fairwear Foundation. I mean, come on, great clothing and a conscience. Since going live in April last year, they've seen their audience grow massively and are now selling orders all across the world. And they were recognised by Cosmopolitan magazine as one of the best sustainable clothing brands alongside names such as Stella McCartney. I mean, that's quite a first year, right? So, go and check them out because they've put a lot of love into supporting this podcast and I couldn't be happier. What else they've done is they've given you 15% off. So if you head over to www.sosclothing.co.uk, do a bit of shopping, see what you like, throw it in the basket, and then on the way out, put in the discount code BEAT15, B-E-A-T-1-5, and that'll save you 15% off. Amazing, right? www.sosclothing.co.uk official sponsors of Off The Beat and Track Podcast. It's Off The Beat and Track Podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. With me, Stu Whipping. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.